See that? We've landed in the middle of the 16th century. <laughs> yes, and that was the very time. What are you talking about? Yes, that strange brotherhood of apothecaries. Well ahead of their time. Now, what was the name of that man that lived in Paris? Prisoner! Prisoner! That's the man. Yes, the most advanced man of them all. I must try to get to see him. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this iconic show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're watching the totally missing story, The Massacre, also known as The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. I'm your host, and I prefer it if you refer to me as the Sea Requester. My co-host is Guy, who may have once impersonated a priest for reasons we don't need to get into here. May have. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. Oh, there's a lot to talk about here. I will say up front, you know, the original remit, as they say, uh, for Doctor Who is it was supposed to be half educational and teach kids about history and everything. Right. And I got to say, this episode certainly did that for me. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I watched the story, I was pretty thoroughly confused because there's a lot of history and a lot of complications yeah, to I, it. I was a little perplexed uh, by it some aspects of it i actually went and looked up some summaries afterwards to yeah i did some wikipedia what... reading and watched <laughs> it again and kind of got it down uh, i just i think it's one of those things like you know if you were an english kid you were probably going to have been immersed in some of this history in school mm -hmm. and it's just not something i had any familiarity with it so it was actually pretty interesting and pretty disturbing really <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. and actually i i know at some point in my school years i was I was taught a, a little about this period. The only thing I remember of it is uh, the word Huguenots, except I was taught it was Huguenots. So <laughs> that was a big uh, revelation for me. Right, right. I had kind of made the commitment during our first season to stop saying, well, for a kid's show, you know, but I'm going to bring that one back for this. <laughs> This is technically a kid's show trying to educate people, and this is there is nothing for kids in this story. <laughs> Absolutely oh, if, nothing. If if I was a young kid who was a big Doctor Who fan, this this would have uh, been a real letdown for me. Well, on top of that, if I was the parent of a kid, I'd be pretty <laughs> uh, concerned about them watching this whole thing about you know. Everybody <laughs> killing everybody and, and everything. Yeah, yeah. But also, yeah, it's just like it's all politics and stuff. I mean, there's nothing, um, you know, there's like 20 seconds of action in the entire story. Yeah, there's, there's one sword fight, and that, that, that's a good uh, minute or two long, I think, the yeah. sword fight is. Yeah, that's a, the action is pretty rare. <laughs> <laughs> so it is totally missing, so we needed to watch Reconstructions. One of the... Weird things about watching reconstructions is for one reason or another, maybe because things get taken down or, you know, whatever, you can't always find every episode from the same person. So you don't necessarily get the same approach to each episode. Mm -hmm. So what we did here is the first ep episode was a traditional kind of reconstruction, right, with some photographs. And the other three are a guy who uses some kind of game engine to animate these things, which is pretty impressive. Well, yeah, it's um, the style of the animation. It looked a lot like a 
PlayStation 1 game mm-hmm. to me, <laughs> uh, except with higher resolution, but about that level of polygon right. detail. It's definitely, I'm not sure when they did them, it's definitely early game engine stuff because you have that whole thing like every time they move their head or they breathe, you know, different parts of their body is clipping through, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's the really early stuff, yeah. But it was fun. I mean, I liked the animation. The guy obviously put a ton of work into it. Oh, yeah, and he was totally committed, yeah. And I totally forgot so, uh, to listen to, you know, I mentioned previously that a great way to experience these, which might have made this story make more sense to me, is the audiobook version of the missing stories that you can get. And, you know, they provide really helpful narration and they probably did some explanation in there. So um, uh, I wish I'd uh, thought to do that as part of this. <laughs> anyway, we should give our listeners a little bit of background for those like us who may not be familiar. So the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which really wasn't a one-day massacre, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, is, you know, in 1572, you had in France this huge fight between Catholics and Protestants. So what happened was in order to heal this fight, a prince, Catholic prince was marrying a Protestant woman so that Everyone can come together and live happily ever after. And the the wedding was supposed to help seal this. Well, you'll see instead the wedding was the, you know, the ignition point for this really, really terrible massacre where just, you know, thousands of Huguenots were killed over a long period of time. Pretty much all the Huguenots in France, all the Protestants in France were killed. It's, it's Huguenots. Yeah, Huguenots, Yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll talk about it as we get into the story, but it is believed to have been instigated by the queen, or the queen mother, anyway. You know, there's a king, but her his mother was was messing around with stuff, and uh, you know this, and it's one of those things, a little bit like, like this story threads through that whole history, but and it does try to explain the history, but if if you don't know the history, it's a little bit harder to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know the history, so it was. Hard. <laughs> Yeah, and the, and several of the characters in here are real, and and we'll talk about that as as we go along. Okay, let's go into episode one: War of God. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with God of War. Yeah, I actually being you know obviously both of us being gamers, and I've recently played one of the God of War ones. I'd, oh. I really I thought I'd mistyped the title. For so the TARDIS materializes out of sight behind a gate. And <laughs> when you know the background of the show, you realize that a lot of times it was really hard to fit the TARDIS onto the set, especially if you had a lot of other stuff going <laughs> on. So, so their solution here was to just show you some lights and then say, yeah, it's over there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the doctor and Stephen come out from behind the gate. And the doctor realizes they're in France when he sees a street sign in French. But he's not sure when, maybe medieval, you know, they're debating it. And then they hide when a man appears and he knocks on a door. And this man is Gaston, who's going to be a key character in the story. And I'm going to say for clarity right up front that he's a Huguenot. Yeah. <laughs> and while watching the men, and I presume it's how they're dressed, the doctor realizes they must be in the mid-16th century and he starts going on about that strange brotherhood of apothecaries that were way ahead of their time. And immediately he wants to go meet some guy named Preslin. As we'll see, one of the interesting and odd things about this story, I mean, there's just him and Stephen. Stephen is his only companion right now. And 
really, this is not the doctor's story. I mean, uh, it's mostly Stephen's story, and the doctor plays a small part in it. Yeah, we uh, we see disappointingly little of the doctor in these episodes. Uh, but it does give Stephen a good chance, and and also, well, I can I will say up front. I guess I'll, I'll ruin some of the end uh, the conclusion. The first couple episodes of this, I was again just sort of confused and not that interested, and et cetera. But by the end, especially in the last episode, both Stephen and the doctor get some really good moments, and it really kind of. You know, this it, it gets more compelling as it goes along. Let's put it that way. Yeah, the later episodes are more interesting once you start to figure out some of what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and so in this house where Gaston went, uh, he and another guy are arguing over whether or not Gaston should be provoking the Catholics. Uh, it's his tendency to provoke them. The other guy whose name we'll learn is Nicholas Moose, and I'll generally refer to him as Moose. Uh, he is much more appeasing. You know, he wants everyone to get along and he doesn't want to go around poking people. And so he criticizes Gaston for that. Meanwhile, Stephen and the doctor return to the TARDIS to dress appropriately <laughs> for the times. And the doctor wants to get a few old papers, presumably to give to Preslin. And the doctor mentions he has quite an extensive wardrobe in the TARDIS. <laughs> Yes, and much, much later in the future stories, occasionally we'll get to see their, the dressing room of the TARDIS. Oh. But at this point, uh, they only refer to it, yeah. You remember the first time they came to France? That's kind of one of the funny things here, too, right? Because they did Reign of Terror, so they've already been to Paris. Yeah, so they already know there's no point in trying to save it. <laughs> and uh, the first time, they just conveniently found a bunch of clothes in a trunk. <laughs> <laughs> So now that's, you know, becoming a little more canonical that, that they've got all these clothes available. Yeah. Meanwhile, at a tavern, and this tavern is going to play a big role in the story, Gaston gives a toast to Henri of Navarre, and he's the Protestant prince who's getting married to the Catholic. He also toasts the Catholic bride, which causes some consternation among the Huguenots here. And then Gaston offends the barkeep, who's, you know, the landlord slash barkeep. You know, he owns the place and he does the work. By asking if there are any non-French wines they could drink. <laughs> well, yeah, not non-French, but non, uh, non-Catholic, because he, he right. wants a Burgundy, I think. If I remember yeah, and right. he talks about wanting something from Germany or whatever, and the, and the, the barkeep says, oh, we have fine Bordeaux here. And <laughs> Gaston says a Bordeaux is a thin Catholic brew. So I'm not <laughs> clear how a wine is a Catholic wine, I, but... <laughs> <laughs> And as they're bantering, a man called Simon Duval shows up, and uh, he's a thread. You know, he is also an important character throughout the story. And and just again for clarity, he's he is a Catholic and a bad guy in our stories. <laughs> and in fact, he is an aide to the Abbot of Amboise. So the Abbot is going to be an important character here. Yeah. And he, he verbally spars with the Huguenots for a bit, and then he takes the barkeep aside, and the barkeep is a, you know, French Catholic, and he tells the barkeep to spy on these people for him. And the barkeep, being a loyal Catholic, is happy to do it for a fee. <laughs> <laughs> we always seem to see barkeeps getting paid off in Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to try that sometime, you know, or just... Look for somebody and say, uh, you know, have you seen this guy? And slide a $20 bill across <laughs> the counter. Right. 
So Simon leaves the tavern as the Doctor and Stephen are entering in their new costumes. And I like uh, and when you see this being the traditional reconstruction where you see the photographs, the Doctor has a good old-fashioned top hat, which yeah. is not nearly as fancy as the plumed thing he had in The Reign of Terror. <laughs> yeah, 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 he had a spiffy outfit there. So the Doctor is planning to find Preslin, and Stephen... He's not really interested in going with them. And the doctor asks Stephen if he knows what Germanology is. And Stephen says he doesn't, which, you know, remember, Stephen is a space pilot in our future. So I would think he might have some familiarity with germs. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think. Although if he had used that word on me, I, uh, you know, if he had said microbiology, I probably would have known what he was talking about. But Germanology, uh, uh, I would have thought it was the study of Germans. So, I don't <laughs> okay. know. Uh, so, he instead, Stephen wants to explore Paris and see the sites. Uh, I don't know what the sites were in Paris in 1570, but uh, they didn't have the Eiffel Tower yet. <laughs> yeah, Notre Dame was probably there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could have seen the hunchback. <laughs> and so, he's going to explore Paris while the doctor visits Preslin because, you know, it's always important to split up when you know nothing about the, the place you're in in the doctor's <laughs> story. And they plan to meet back at the tavern. I'm sure that'll all go fine. Oh, sure. And as the doctor leaves, he bumps into someone who turns and follows him out. And Stephen notices this, and he's about to follow to, to warn the doctor when the barkeep reminds him that it's custom to pay for your drinks. <laughs> and so Stephen has a coin. Presumably the doctor gave it to him. And he hands it to the barkeep, but it's a gold coin, so it's very valuable. And the barkeep, uh, you know, says it's supposed to be two sous, which a sou is a traditional currency, you know, think of a small coin. And this is an ecu, and I looked this up, and an ecu indeed was this gold coin. Though I I wasn't able to get a sense of the relative value of them, but... uh, I imagine it's like going to a dive bar and trying to pay with a hundred. Yeah. And so the bartender can't uh, change a gold coin. And the man that Gaston met in the first scene, uh, Moose, pays the bill for Stephen. And then, this is a little clever, he points out that the barkeep forgot to give Stephen his gold coin back. <laughs> you know that barkeep likes his money. <laughs> Stephen asks Moose about how to get to President's shop because he wants to warn the doctor about being followed. But it's kind of weird because... As they're talking, Stephen loses interest in warning the doctor and says, ah, he'll be able to take care of himself. (laughs) What a a partner to have there. Yeah, well, it it sounds like the guy intends to help him. He just wants to get some drinks first. Yeah, so so he agrees to join Moose in some drinking, and later they can explore Paris. Meanwhile, the doctor reaches Preslin's shop and goes in, but the the old man there says, Preslin is no longer here. He's left Paris. (laughs) But the doctor isn't fooled. He knows this is Preslin. <laughs> and so he praises Preslin for discovering small creatures that cause illness and tells him there's a man in Germany working on how to get a picture of these germs. And he finally gets Preslin to admit who he is. Yeah, it's he mentioned optics. I think it's somebody working on a microscope. Mm. I'm, I'm tempted to say Anton von Leeuwenhoek. Was the guy who did that? Sounds it could be wrong. Potentially German. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> look up who he was talking about. But this does excite Preslin to know that people are working on this thing. 
Meanwhile, back at the tavern, Gaston has been interrogating Stephen. So he's, you know, the more suspicious sort, and he wants to make sure Stephen is not a spy or something. And it turns out that Moose is here to protect a person named Admiral de Colini, Colani. I don't know how to say that. Uh, it's Colony, Colony is how they right. pronounce it usually in the, the show. Yeah, I wasn't paying. I was sort of reading notes and not paying attention to how they pronounce it. And Gaston is here to protect uh, the prince who's getting married, Henri. And they explain, you know, Stephen has, Stephen is our stand-in, right? He has no idea what's going on. So they explained to him about the Huguenot. And then Moose points Stephen in the direction to go and find Preslin. Meanwhile, we see a girl running through the streets. This is Anne Chaplet, we'll discover. And she's running away from guards. And she bumps into Stephen while she's running into the tavern. And a guard comes into the tavern looking for her. And it turns out she has been chosen to be a servant girl for the abbot. Now, they've never seen the abbot. He is, he's coming here. And he's going to be arriving in town shortly. And... Gaston, you know, as we've already seen, Gaston likes to cause trouble and he refuses to <laughs> let the guard pass and actually draws his sword to prevent him. And the guard says the abbot will hear about this. And of course, Gaston thinks that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out uh, in this, you know, one thing not so great about Gaston, even though he's kind of, you know, on the good side is presented in the story. He doesn't care about the girl at all. He just saw it as an opportunity to bait the guard and try to get into a fight. And he tells Stephen, though, that he needs to come back in. It's clearly it's not safe outside right now. Back at Preslin's shop, Preslin is telling the doctor about the abbot. So it turns out the abbot is against the work that Preslin has been doing. That's why Preslin lied about who he was. Uh, he's afraid of, you know, something happening to him. He's pretty sure when the abbot arrives, he's going to be hunted down. And the doctor contemplates the idea of trying to meet the abbot and talk him out of this. I just want to put a pin in this right here because I'm going to note that at this point, uh, the doctor has absolutely no trouble about trying to change the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we may hear a little something about that later. Then, then again, uh, doc, the doctor may know what Preslin's fate was already. So if, if Preslin survived all this, the doctor might figure, well, I may as well have played a part in that. <laughs> Yeah, still not sure we're being real consistent. <laughs> not that the doctor's ever been consistent about this. <laughs> so back in the tavern, Stephen is concerned about the girl, and she comes into the room, and Gaston and Stephen get her to tell them why she was scared. It turns out she comes from a place called Vassy, and 10 years ago, there was a massacre of Huguenots there. And Vassacre. <laughs> and she... Uh, you know, when she started working at the Abbott's place, she overheard people there saying that what happened at Vassy was about to happen again. Although it's a little unclear because she really just heard them say Vassy, and she kind of mm. speculated from that what they meant. And right. so that makes it a little harder to know whether to take this seriously or not. At the Abbott's residence, Simon Duval, he was the guy who, who bribed the barkeep, he criticizes the guard for not getting the girl. And they debate whether she could have understood what she overheard and whether it would have put the Huguenots on alert. Because, you know, they because they didn't really say anything, they figure she must not have understood it. On the other hand, why did she run away? You know, so they're having this debate. <laughs> and Simon insists that a man named Colbert stay and report this to the abbot when he arrives, as it was Colbert who talked in front of the girl. And Simon tells the guard to go and find the girl. Back in the tavern, Gaston wants the girl to get lost. He doesn't care about her at this point. 
But Moose says no, because, you know, if the Catholics get a hold of her, they could find out what she's told them, and that's going to cause problems. And he says he can get her a job with the admiral that he works for, the one we mentioned. And he tells her to go to the admiral's house. And then he leaves to meet the admiral, and Stephen stays to connect with the doctor at the tavern as they'd planned. Back at President's shop, a young boy, has, it turns out, had taken the doctor, uh, presumably to the abbot, and the boy is returned, and President is hoping that the doctor succeeds in convincing the abbot not to hunt him down. <laughs> and at the tavern, it's now evening, Stephen's been waiting for hours, the doctor hasn't shown up. Simon comes in and asks the barkeep where the girl is. The barkeep says he doesn't know. But he reports that she talked to the Huguenots who left quickly after. But that Englishman over there, you know, Stephen, was with them. And Simon pays the barkeep more money. And the barkeep suddenly remembers that the girl went to the admiral's place. (laughs) (laughs) Then Simon approaches Stephen and tells him the curfew is about to go into effect. And he's going to get stuck here. But Stephen says, no, he's waiting for a friend. So, of course, Simon covertly tells the barkeep to report on who this friend is when he arrives. And Moose comes back and is surprised to find that Stephen is still there, especially with the curfew going into effect. In fact, the church bell rings, so the curfew is now in effect. And Moose convinces Stephen to come with him to his place. And back at the abbot's place, the abbot has finally arrived. Now, again, nobody knows who he is. So, And we're seeing him from behind. And Colbert tells him about the girl escaping and the abbot is very upset. As Colbert is talking, we don't hear him say anything, but he's like smacking his cane on the ground or something. And then Simon arrives and tells them that the girl is at the admiral's and the abbot tells them to fetch her tomorrow. And you might kind of recognize the voice. And then we see <laughs> who the abbot is and it appears to be the doctor. Yeah. And it's the end <laughs> of the episode. So that's a very, very interesting little twist at the end, which... Uh, to relieve the suspense, I will just say, never goes anywhere. <laughs> well, but, uh, I mean, it, it does play a role. The, the question about him plays a role. Well, it, it, it affects the course of future events, yeah. uh, but then it, yeah, well, I'll, we'll get to it. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I, I actually have the episode when we uh, <laughs> find out all the truth, and I'll complain about it. When I was reading up on this, um, there is a theory that this part of the story was based on a true event. Apparently, you know, around this time frame, someone did impersonate a major religious figure and then got uh, assassinated for it. But yeah, it was easier back then, mm-hmm. right? Because you didn't have photos or anything. So if you knew that somebody was going to be coming, it was, you know, you could pretend to be them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think uh, even in Doctor Who already, we've seen some... Like uh, when he was in Rome, didn't the doctor impersonate some musician? Right, right, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, okay, so on to episode two, The Sea Beggar. The Sea Beggar, or The Sea Requester, (laughs) as as you prefer. In some of these locations, now this is, as we mentioned, this this is the episode that kicks off the PS1 style graphics and uh it they're they're pretty pretty well done i think but mm-hmm. it is uh hard sometimes to tell where you're supposed to be at you know um fortunately i've mentioned this site in the past there's that chrissy chrissy's transcripts chakotea.net uh which has very helpful scripts and that 
helped me get an idea of where they are at various points. Yeah, it, it was story. invaluable to me on this one. Not only the locations, because he's kind of the person who did this is sort of stuck with sort of these game, you know, backgrounds. But also just to know who was who and who was talking, because there's there's a lot of complicated stuff in this plot. And so, yeah. yeah, and the uh, and the three D models that are used here don't necessarily match directly to the faces we had seen in the previous reconstruction. Uh, so there's a little bit of mental translation you have to learn, even if you were fully up on the characters in the previous episode. Uh, but that's just details. I'm not complaining because it is a, a, a lovingly done recreation, mm-hmm. I think. But, uh, just has some limitations, mm-hmm. that's all. So we're in Admiral de Colony's house, and Nicholas, who is the Admiral's assistant, and Gaston, who is a protector of Henry of Navarre, uh, they're talking about Henry and saying that he's too trusting. And Henry is the uh, is the prince, uh, the Protestant prince, who has caused all the fuss lately by marrying the Catholic princess. So they think Henry's too trusting. And Stephen, they mention, had gone back to the tavern to try and find the doctor, hoping the doctor had returned. At the tavern, the innkeeper is surly, and he's unhelpful. He hasn't seen the doctor, so he says, uh, if you need help, go and ask it of your Huguenot friends. <laughs> so that's, uh, you, can, you can tell he is really, really a good Catholic in some ways. <laughs> At the Admiral's house again, Nicholas and Gaston are talking about the Vesey massacre. And Stephen returns. He she talks about his search for the doctor, and he says, "I even went to the tech." And then he interrupts himself, and he says, "The place where I'm to leave from." And <laughs> the first time I watched this, I thought he was stopping himself from saying TARDIS, but actually he was saying tavern. But that raises the question: Why would he stop himself? from saying tavern and be opaque about that. I thought he was saying TARDIS, but uh, uh, I did not examine it more closely. <laughs> <laughs> so he asks for help finding the chemist's shop. He had gotten directions before, but he's forgotten them. But before they can head off, uh, Nicholas was going to help him, but but Mr. Colbert arrives, and he's looking for the runaway servant girl. And he has a theory, which he goes into, and his theory is correct, though no one confirms it, uh, that the girl was scared away by overhearing the mention of Vessi, and she uh, she had a bad experience there. She was there at the time of the massacre a decade ago. But Mr. Colbert finally notices her uh, in the room, uh, in Chaplet, or uh, the Eng- anglicized version will be Chaplet. And Gaston lies poorly. <laughs> he visibly takes a moment to make up a name. <laughs> and he's probably perfectly happy with that. He's probably just enjoying, you know, sticking it to this guy. Mm. He says that she's Genevieve and she's been working here a while. So Colbert leaves. He knows he's made all the progress he's going to make. At least he knows she's there. Uh, and then... the the gentlemen inside see through the window going or looking outside. They see Colbert out in the street talking to the abbot. It turns out the abbot had been waiting outside. Mm-hmm. 
And Stephen notices that, and he says, that's the doctor. <laughs> Which, he should have kept his mouth shut, but, uh, you know, that was, uh, it was a natural thing to blurt out. But now, because the abbot is the doctor, apparently, uh, Gaston and Nicholas are both offended, because the abbot, of course, is Catholic. Right. So they're all up in arms now. Uh, so Stephen tries to back down. He says, it looked like the doctor. I must be mistaken. So both the Huguenots are suspicious, but still, Nick says he'll still take Stephen to the shop. I will say, this is a real contrived plot moment, right? Because there's absolutely no reason the abbot would have come here, right? He sent his minions to get the girl. He wouldn't, you know, come. But, but they needed a way for Stephen to see him. Um, so this is what they came up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they could have thrown in something about uh, they were going for coffee. Or <laughs> I don't know. Then we switch locations to Louvre, and this is uh, where Simon and the Marshal are talking. Yeah, and I there's something I don't know here, and I didn't get a chance to look up. So the script refers to it as the Louvre Palace, and of course we have now the Louvre Art Museum. And I don't know if those are two different locations or if at one point it was a palace. I, I have no idea what the deal I, is there. But. I believe the museum is the former palace, but I am not 100% certain <laughs> on that. So Simon's talking to the marshal, and the marshal uh, says that he's suspicious of the abbot. And he also is suspicious of another thing, which is that Nicholas, the admiral's secretary, is hosting an Englishman. So the marshal uh, also mentions that he's going to bring word later regarding the sea beggar. <laughs> and speak of the devil, uh, we don't know yet that this is the sea beggar, but it is. Uh, admiral de Coligny comes in. He hopes that the uh, the marshal will side with the Dutch. The Dutch are petitioning the French king for assistance now. And he says, the sea beggars, as you call them, because apparently he walked in just, just right. to hear the marshal say sea beggar, but he didn't realize he wasn't saying it about the Dutch. He was saying mm -hmm. it about himself. And I was curious about this, so I looked up the term, and it was a real term, and it did refer to the Dutch. And the deal was, as is in this story, the Dutch were appealing to people to help them out. And because they kind of owned the sea and they would come from the sea to make this request, uh, they ended up getting called the sea beggars. <laughs> so, and then, so by calling him a sea beggar, it's kind of lumping him in with the Dutch, which he supports the Dutch, as we'll see. So, by the way, uh, I, had a, I wanted to give you a little quiz. I just texted you with a picture of the marshal from the actual show. Uh -uh. And Let's I wanted see. to see if you recognize this person. All righty. Come here. Let me zoom in here. Oh, you see the guy on the left? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah, woman on the right. Because the queen is on the right. <laughs> uh, uh, hmm, he looks familiar. He's uh, we, kind of sinister we've looking. We've seen him on in this podcast. Uh, so <laughs> that is Quatermass. <laughs> Oh, no kidding. It's Andre Morel. So I happened to, know, you know, I, I didn't know what he looked like because we were watching the reconstructions. And then uh, I saw his name in the credits and so, uh, kind of amusing. Yep. Oh, I'll be darned. Okay, very good. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where was I now? Oh, the uh, the Dutch, the sea beggars. Yeah, the, the idea is there's some kind of conflict going on with the Dutch and the Spanish, probably because the Spanish are Catholic and the Dutch are Protestant. Uh, we don't really go into a detail about a lot of the politics. You know, we just get just enough to sort of 
know the basics of what's going on. Uh, but the hope is the French king is going to ally with the Dutch against the Spanish because big war and all that stuff. So the marshal asks about the Englishmen who stayed at the admiral's house. And the admiral says, well, there was a stranger who stayed the night last night. I think he might have been English, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I don't really know anything about him. And then we're out on the street. And this is the street where Nicholas and Stephen are searching for the chemist's shop. And he finally notices a shop sign. And it's in, in the animation, it's not really clear exactly what's happening. But, but he dashes toward it when he notices it. And he jostles a woman in the process. And she's irritated. But after she settles down, she explains that the shop's closed. It's been closed for some time now. She says the chemist is probably burned or in prison, or at least he should have been. <laughs> so you can tell what side she's on. <laughs> it's kind of amusing the little thing here about the animation engine, you know, since he's using a gaming engine. And so it's clear that, like, the Steven character was programmed to to knock over the woman. But in order to do so, he had to sort of run out of his way and knock her over and then go to the door. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there, there are some, some fun little quirks throughout. Like, uh, we'll see places where somebody takes off running and then somebody pursues them at normal walking speed why well, you know, stuff like that. yeah <laughs> so this the shop being closed and having been closed for some time uh this makes nicholas just more suspicious because uh, you know how was the doctor going to meet the chemist if his shop's been closed yeah. for a year or more so nick wants Stephen to come back with him and he's going to talk to his little Council of Huguenots and figure out what to do uh, with Stephen, but but no, Stephen escapes. Uh, and in the in the animation, he simply <laughs> just turns around and dashes away, and Nick walks behind him. Yeah. But later on, uh, we'll find an alternate explanation of what probably happened during the live action film. Right. Uh, and this is actually a good story point here because it's an impossible situation, right? Which is Stephen is innocent. But they're going to assume he's guilty, and he's probably in trouble if he goes back. Mm. So he runs away. But running away proves that he's guilty, right? So right. the whole thing is, yeah, he's kind of screwed if he does and screwed if he doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in the Abbott's apartments, uh, Simon and Colbert are talking. And we find out the assassin's real name is Moravere, but he is the codename Bondo, which is... Uh, it's like Bordeaux. It ends with E-A-U-X. But when I heard it, I just thought Bondo, like the stuff where you fill in dents on cars. It's interesting. So I had missed this little exchange. So I saw in the reading I did that it is assumed that the assassin was this guy named Morver. But I thought, oh, they changed it, I guess, because I only noticed him being referred to as Bondo. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that Morver only gets mentioned that one time in this mm -hmm. one conversation, if I remember right. So... Colbert explains that he did see the abbot once at a meeting, uh, but he only met him yesterday. So I think the purpose of this dialogue is to give us the idea that, oh, that could just be the doctor impersonating the abbot. Right. And there's an interesting background thing here, which is, you may notice in the credits at times, which person is listed as a writer sort of changes. The original writer... John Lucarotti, who wrote the, I mean, he's written most of the historical ones. He wrote the Aztecs, which we really liked. And he apparently wanted the Abbott to just be the doctor, you know, William Hartnell playing another character. 
And the other writer who got involved wanted there to be a question about whether it was the doctor impersonating the abbot. And so they had a disagreement about this and, you know, scripts got rewritten and names were taken off of scripts and you know, it's one of those just little, <laughs> little background things. But uh, as it ends up, you know, we do at least for a while have a question of it, that it might be the doctor impersonating the abbot. Right. Right. And, and of course, at the end of the episode, we had heard the doctor's very voice. Mm -hmm. So, and presumably saw his face in the live action version. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we would have reason to uh, speculate about that. <laughs> Colbert uh, tells of seeing Stephen also. Uh, and Simon wants Colbert to find out more about him. Back at the Admiral's place, Anne tells Gaston about Stephen. She says he's kind and gentle. Nick returns and reports that Stephen's escaped, and uh, there's speculation that Stephen's a Catholic spy. And Anne says, no, he can't be. She she protests, you know, he's he's far too nice a guy to be Catholic. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't use those words, but that's what she implies. It's a fun thing I was thinking about, you know, as we think about, oh, this is the 1570s and you have all this religious discrimination. You know, when JFK became president, he was the first Catholic president, Mm -hmm. There were literally rumors that he was planning to build a tunnel to the Vatican and to, you know, do whatever <laughs> the Pope told him to do. So, you know, 400-something mm -hmm. years later, you know, some of that stuff had not changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, – I remember reading that that was a common speculation. That was that basically he would be the puppet of the, of the Pope. Who knows? Maybe he was. I've never <laughs> researched it that extensively. Yeah. Although maybe um, the Pope was uh, was the other guy on the grassy knoll. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> or maybe it was a Protestant on the grassy That's knoll. That's true. I guess that would make a little more sense. Oh, maybe the Pope <laughs> was there trying to stop it. <laughs> mm, there so you that, go. Right now we got a new Doctor Who story we, <laughs> we can pitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That would be a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> so Gaston dismisses Anne. He's had enough of her. This guy clearly has a thing about women. I mean, he's just not interested. I mean, it's not like an implication he's gay or something, but boy, he just doesn't care about women. Yeah, yeah. He even says, you're too kind to these nothings. <laughs> so, yeah, Gaston is just disagreeable in a lot of respects. I mean, he, he picks fights. He treats the you know, servants like turds, you know, <laughs> so on. Nicholas says that Stephen escaped by pushing him into a passerby, and this isn't what we saw in the animation where he just whirled around and ran away. But that's apparently what we would have seen in the live-action version. Hmm. And then we see an alley near the, uh, near the abbot, and Stephen wants to check out what's going on at the abbot's place, and he... He's playing kind of a stealth action game with guard patrols. A patrol appears in front of him, and he turns around and walks the other way. Then one appears in front of him when he's going that way, so he turns around again, and the first patrol is gone. So he mm -hmm. heads back the way he was going. So finally, he makes it to one of the windows of the Abbott's apartments, and he's lurking at the window there. And he gets to hear Simon and the marshal talking. Uh, Simon has to give the Abbott a message that the sea beggar dies tomorrow after the council meeting at the Louvre. Then the, the marshal leaves, and Simon tells Colbert 
This order isn't actually from the marshal, but from the queen mother, who mm. is, of course, the king's mom. At the admiral's house, Gaston catches Stephen searching Nick's papers. Nicholas's papers. <laughs> they sword fight. The animator, I got to give him credit for this. The blade clashes are really synced up well. Every time you hear a sound effect on the track, it, blades are actually mm-hmm. clashing. So mm-hmm. good job on that one. And, uh, and, and the lip syncing, we, we discussed this a little bit earlier. The lip syncing throughout these animations is quite good also. So there really was just a whole lot of work put into yeah, it. Yeah. And I can say from some experience recently that it, lip syncing can take as much effort as all the rest of the animation. I mean, it's a lot of work <laughs> when you're doing, I mean, you'll, and that's why you'll see so often in animation, they're just flapping their lips, but yeah. that's not what's happening here. They're really doing the words. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's really, uh, really painstakingly done here. Um, there, there are a few moments I noticed where we'll see lips moving with no sound, and there's probably some story behind yeah. it. Yeah. But for the most part, it's uh, very nicely matched up. So it's not evident from the animation, but in the script, it mentions that Stephen is just pretty much playing defense. He doesn't actually want to harm Gaston, so I... I guess he's just stalling for time or trying to wear him out or Mm. whatever. And Gaston finally just tells him to get out. And we hear him say this in the video, but they still keep fighting (laughs) uh, until Nicholas comes in and interrupts them, at which point Stephen bugs out, doesn't stick around to talk. And even now, uh, you know, Gaston is outraged. He he tells Nicholas that uh, this guy was going through your papers. But even now, it seems that Nicholas may still have some trust for Stephen. You know, he's reluctant to completely disbelieve him. Mm-hmm. But we just, he doesn't really explicitly say that, but he he doesn't answer when when Gaston accuses him of still trusting him. So, yeah. Uh, then we see Stephen walking down the street. He goes around a corner, and then Anne is following behind him. But then when she reaches the corner, he's turned around and he pops out and startles her. And the curfew bells are ringing now, so they've got to figure out how to get off the street. She can't go back to the habits. As she mentions, she doesn't know who the sea beggar is. Stephen Stephen mentions this sea beggar who's going to be killed tomorrow and doesn't mean anything to her. Um, she goes on to say that she can't go back to her aunts, so she doesn't have a lot of options. But Stephen has a, a good idea. Uh, the chemist's shop has been abandoned for a year or more now, so uh, they may as well use it as their hideout. So that's where they go. And back at the Admiral's, the Admiral returns. He's been talking to the king. He tells Nicholas that he thinks he may have persuaded the king to join the Dutch. But will the king still feel that way tomorrow morning? Who knows? Mm -hmm. And the king had told him, you, de Colony, will go down to history as the sea beggar. And he repeats the term and he says, the sea beggar. It's a title I'd be proud of. (laughs) And that's the end of the episode. Not a huge cliffhanger in this case. There's something I forgot to mention earlier. You think about it, there's not much uh, uh, Hartnell in this. So Hartnell was on vacation this week. Ah. He does appear as the abbot for a moment, but that was pre-recorded. 
Okay. Um, so that gave uh, Stephen an opportunity to have this whole story. And next up, episode three, The Priest of Death. So at uh, Preslin's shop, Stephen is sleeping on the floor while Anne is looking for something to eat. And she manages to accidentally wake him up. Turns out it's the next day. And so Stephen says, and the sea beggar dies today. Mm-hmm. I do. I I really like that phrase, sea beggar. And I think it was uh, <laughs> it, it was clever of them to make it a big part of the story. It's just kind of an interesting phrase. Yeah, I, I it definitely uh, adds a little bit of flavor to it. Plus, it's a legitimate historical term. So <laughs> yeah. uh, you're learning something. And so Stephen insists on going back to the abbots to see the doctor because he's sure that, you know, the doctor is the abbot or that the doctor is pretending to be the abbot. <laughs> and Anne points out that they'll recognize him. So Stephen decides to disguise himself and he disappears behind a convenient curtain. And I'm sure this is in the live action, too, because of the way it sounds where, mm. you know, you hear him kind of deciding what to wear and all this and talking about the hat and everything. And then he pops out. No, I don't know. And actually... Maybe there's a picture of this. I mean, there are various pictures, but so much was lost from this. I mean, usually, you know, as we've commented, a lot of times the reconstructions are practically animated because there's so many pictures. Well, the deal is that they would hire a guy to take pictures for promotional purposes or archival purposes during the show. But the director of this story didn't want that. So we only have a few pictures, and we actually do not know what a lot of the costumes are. We do not know what the abbot was wearing, uh, et cetera. So for a reconstructor, you're just sort of stuck, you know, mm, having yeah. to, to, to do something. Mm, so anyway, he yeah. pops out, and in this reconstruction anyway, in this animated thing, he's just he's wearing this sort of cap that looks kind of dorky. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's one of those, actually, I have a winter hat that's similar to it. It's a... Uh, you know, like you've probably seen them. You, you think of like Canadians wearing them. They got the big flaps hanging down, and so you can fasten it under your chin. And there's, they're not quite that long, but it's that, sort of that style. It's got these big flaps on the side. <laughs> so I guess I just called both you and and Canadians dorky, but <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's I, not the first time for me. Yeah, I stand behind <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, so. And presumably, I forget if we actually see this, presumably Anne also puts on a, a costume because, you know, she really didn't want to come. She knows she'll be figured, you know, identified and he convinces her to come. And then we see the king talking to his advisors, which includes the admiral and the marshal. And they're all arguing about allying with the Dutch. So the admiral was correct the night before when he's like, well, who knows if he'll still want this in the morning, right? So mm-hmm. it's the next morning and the king hasn't made up his mind. And they're they're debating it. And as we said, you know, it's all complicated because the Dutch are Protestants and the Spanish are Catholics. So everyone's kind of allied with them according to their religion. And so that means the marshal is against this and he keeps pointing out that they can't afford it. And and, and the king says, yes, as my mother keeps telling me. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, they're like, well, maybe the queen is going to help us out and you know, the marshal says, the uh, Queen Elizabeth, you know, of England, and marshal says, oh, she lies all the time. You can't rely on her word. <laughs> and this one, I actually, you know, I watched uh, Elizabeth R., which is, I would love to do that series sometimes, an amazing series if you've never seen it. Mm. And, I, and I know, you know, I've, I've read and everything and a fair amount about the Queen, but actually, I don't have a sense of whether that's accurate or not, that she was, that her word couldn't be trusted. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I've 
really only seen her portrayed in uh, Blackadder. <laughs> <laughs> Another great series that I, I've only watched a few episodes of, but it's just amazing, and it's one that I want to uh, watch all the way through. Oh, yeah, it's it's fun. <laughs> Uh, and then he intentionally offends the king by saying that, you know, he's going to have to pay for this war, so he might have to sell off his hunting lands to the Italians. And, you know, we don't know all the background here, but it's just really obvious that there's – and the king kind of – that's really needling him because the king likes mm. hunting clearly and he's not going to sell yeah. off any uh, lands and he makes it clear. But, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, the marshal is just trying to, you know, argue in a way that he's going to understand, right? Like you're going to actually right. have to give up some of your luxuries if you do this. <laughs> and the admiral insists that they can't escape having honest discussions about the differences in religions, right? They just, you know – I think he's kind of meaning the country as a whole has just got to put everything on the table and, and work through this. They can't just, you know, keep battling each other. Mm. And then, and this is really dumb, when you're, you know, clearly he, the admiral's in the minority here, right? Everybody else is a Catholic except for the the king maybe. I'm not even sure what the, well, I guess the king is, is Catholic, but he's but he's sympathetic, right? Mm. I, I keep mixing up the king and the prince that, you know, the prince isn't really part of the story. We only hear about him. Yeah, we never actually see him or hear him talk or any of that. So the admiral is like a minority of one in this council, and he then insults the king or by saying that it seems to be the queen mother who's really wielding the power around here rather than the king. It's like, huh, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't go there if I were you, but okay. <laughs> yeah. The king tires of all this talking, and he ends it so he can play tennis because he's got a new racket he's all excited about. <laughs> and he insists that the admiral join him. You know, the admiral wants to go off and work, but no, he's got to join the king playing tennis. Back at the abbots, Stephen is trying to get in to see the abbot, but he's blocked by a priest. You know, before we continue, it might be worth mentioning that the king asked him to play tennis. Uh, because he was pleased with him, because mm -hmm. he ticked off the queen mother with the remarks that he made, which the king enjoyed, because apparently he doesn't get along with his mom real well. Well, yeah, you're right. That's a good point. And so I was I was kind of wrong to imply, because uh, I was kind of saying that he would be annoying the king. But what he was really doing was he was giving his enemies something to use against him, right? Because they could go to the queen mother and say, this guy is trying to undermine you right so right uh, but you're right it, it it actually made him all the more <laughs> uh connected to the king and in fact we'll see later i mean the king and the, and his mother really really don't like each other <laughs> yeah that's a that's a it's a tragedy <laughs> so back at the abbot stephen is trying to get in to see the abbot who he believes is the doctor but he's blocked by a priest and then the abbot happens to enter the room and is it the doctor or not? Well, he sure doesn't act like he knows Stephen. And it's clear that Stephen is kind of thrown because, you know, he doesn't refer to him as the doctor. He doesn't talk to him about stuff they'd know. Instead, he does something really kind of crummy because <laughs> Anne is standing next to him, of course, in disguise. And he says, oh, I brought that girl back to you that escaped. And she's <laughs> sort of shocked. And it's like, you know, so he basically threw her under the bus the second he, right. he was convenient. But in his defense, this is, I mean, this voice that we're hearing as viewers is clearly William Hartnell. I mean, this is the doctor. Uh, or, well, it is the voice of the man who is the doctor. Now, in the story, things will take a turn. Right. You know, later but on. Stephen is certainly taking a chance because he's not quite clear 
what yeah. the deal is. And then the marshal enters because he wants to speak with the abbot. And so the abbot sends Stephen and Anne outside, and they listen at the window. <laughs> the marshal says that Bondo is prepared to go to the Place Saint-Germain. And I wasn't totally sure what this means, but basically it's, you know, a location that Stephen and everyone else understands that the admiral is going to be going by. So Stephen realizes from this that they're going to kill the admiral. And that's when he realizes that the sea beggar is the admiral. And he tells Anne that they've got to tell Nicholas Moose about this. So they run away. <laughs> and there's kind of a funny thing here because Colbert then rushes in to the abbot and tells them that he just saw the man who was with Anne. And that was the Englishman who was staying at the admiral's house. And that the two of them have just run away. And the marshal orders him to get them back. And then he and the abbot argue. And this is the funny part because he's like, well, you just said this stuff and they heard you. And the abbot's like, no, they didn't hear me. I sent them outside. There's no possible way they heard me. <laughs> it's just kind of weird. <laughs> and, and he continues throughout the episode to insist he couldn't possibly have been heard. <laughs> so back at the admiral's place, Stephen rushes in and tells Moose that the admiral is the target. And they're going to kill him as he returns from the king's council. Now, the, the advantage here is because the king has delayed him for tennis, you know, <laughs> there might be a chance to save him. Huh. And then we get a street view, and this is one where the reconstruction here kind of messed it up because it's an empty street, and the camera just goes back and forth for an entire, like, minute. I mean, it just doesn't stop, and it's showing absolutely nothing. And when I looked at the script, it turned out there's a whole thing that should be here. And, and maybe the animator didn't know about it or maybe for some reason he couldn't pull it off, which is what we're supposed to be seeing is the assassin setting up his gun and his location and everything to shoot the admiral. But instead, we just keep looking at, you know, walls. <laughs> uh. Finally, we see the admiral and Moose walking along and... Here's another just little unfortunate thing. In the animation, the Admiral is simply shot. But in the script, he's reading a report as he walks along and one of the pages flies away and he's trying to grab it when he's shot and that keeps him from being killed. Ah. In reality, at least the story is that he was bending down to tie his shoe when the oh. shot occurred. So so this is actually an important little point and the animation doesn't, doesn't portray it at all. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, th there's a fair few movies that will use that gimmick or mm -hmm. TV shows and movies where, you know, somebody bends down to tie a shoe at the last minute and whoops, the bullet missed him. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting to know that there's actually a significant historical event where <laughs> that apparently is what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we get this weird thing, especially in the animation, because... The Admiral is lying on his face in the animation. I don't think this is the way it was because and – and I didn't even understand what was happening at first. He says, see how honest men are treated in France because he's just been shot. And there's two things about this. One, it's really funny to have him you know, on his face saying this uh, in the animation. But two, I did feel like, okay, we know you're the good guy, but – you don't really get to call yourself the honest man. I mean, you know, you got to leave that to others. <laughs> <laughs> But when I first saw this, because he was face down, so you can't really see him talking, I thought one of the other people said it, like Moose or something, you know, and it wasn't until I looked at the script that I realized that he said it. Nah. So, and then he also tells them where the shot came from that hit him. I don't know how he would know that. And they go into the house to search it for the assassin. Well, he'd uh, he'd know, <laughs> he'd probably know where he was it, so he could know yeah, the maybe. angle where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So back at the abbot's place, the abbot and the marshal are waiting to hear that the admiral has been killed. 
And the marshal complains that the abbot gave Stephen a chance to warn the admiral. And as I said, once again, the abbot just insists there's no possible way Stephen could have heard what they were saying. And Marshall now says, and it's a little weird to me because he just kind of assumed that, oh, the abbot would have the power here, right? And I guess technically he's supposed to have it. But Marshall says, if something goes wrong with this, you're going to have to answer for it. And he also then is clearly the abbot's like, well, you know, but the cardinal and is going to save me. And he's like, the cardinal's in Rome <laughs> and you're here. He can't save you. So, you know, he is supposed to have the power, but he doesn't really have power. It's that kind of thing. And he doesn't like have a police force or something. Hmm. And. The abbot then tries to leave and really showing like how powerless he is, Marshall refuses to let him leave the room. And Colbert then arrives and reports that the admiral was shot, but he wasn't killed. And that's the last draw. So the marshal calls some guards in and orders them to kill the abbot and they start moving towards him. Well, it seems like a severe reaction to me, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not a marshal. Well, so one know. of the things he says that I didn't mention is he says since – and this kind of – you know – for the viewer, because you don't know yet, it kind of confirms the idea that it might be the doctor. He says, ever since you showed up, all of our well-laid plans started going wrong. So he mm -hmm. actually – and then he tells the guards, this man is an enemy of the Queen Mother. So I think that he is assuming this guy is – is an, whether he thinks he's an impersonator or actually the abbot, he thinks he's on the wrong side. Yeah. We then switch to the Queen Mother. She's asking for a report. And the king enters while she's getting it and hears that the admiral has been shot. And he's very upset, but he's very upset in a selfish way. It's like, everybody's <laughs> always screwing with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never yeah. get any peace. <laughs> yeah. It's like somebody interrupted his video game. Then <laughs> right. he does want the assassin caught and punished and he insists on the council being called. And back at the Admiral's house, he's in bad shape. Now, this is one of the things where he just couldn't really portray it in the animation. So he's kind of leaning against a wall and you just have to have to interpret the situation. And he has to be taken to his room. Moose doesn't want to move him. He wants to wait for the surgeon to arrive. And then Stephen shows up and says he knew the sea beggar was going to be killed, but he didn't know until, until this morning who the sea beggar was. But he is certain now that the abbot is the doctor. Mm hmm which is a little problematic because right after that, they're told that the abbot has been killed. <laughs> he was found dead outside of his home. And, of course, the Huguenots are being blamed. I mean, it was, you know, Marshall, who's a Catholic, killed him. But it's assumed <laughs> that, of course, it would be the Huguenots who killed the abbot. No, sure, because the abbot is Catholic. Yeah. So this means the doctor is dead. <laughs> Uh, again, I don't know, at least second, uh, it's the third, but at least second time the doctor has died. <laughs> you remember, uh, yeah, you remember the, the death uh, of Doctor Who? The death of Doctor <laughs> Who, yeah. yeah. Which confirmed that his name really is Doctor Who. It's <laughs> canon. And we see the King's Council in their meeting. And the King says that since the Marshal says he has nothing to do with the Abbot's death, he's now going to charge him with protecting the Admiral. And if anything happens to the Admiral, it'll be his, the Marshal's head. And as the marshal leaves, we get an infinitely long walk across this room by the queen mother coming to talk to him. This is one of the cases where clearly we don't know what they were showing in the episode, but there's about 30 seconds yet to, to cover here. So it's just a really slow, <laughs> long walk. <laughs> and the king, this is where we get to see their relationship, right? Because the king threatens to put his mother in a convent <laughs> as he realizes she and the marshal have been plotting. And... She tells him the Huguenots 
were not only going to try and kill her, but they were trying to kill him also. And he says, why would they do that? I support them. And she said, well, but now that we've had this marriage and, and you know, there's a, a Protestant in the line of secession, they don't care if you support them. They'd rather kill you and have a Protestant in charge. Now, we don't know if that's true. We never heard them say anything like that. But, you know, hmm. it's, a, I guess, a reasonable argument to make. Yeah, they probably wouldn't mind anyway. <laughs> yeah. And back on the street, and uh, I'll say the animator did a pretty good job with this. You know, there's a bunch of citizens looking at the abbot's body, and they're kind of working themselves up into a frenzy about how they need to hold the Huguenots responsible. And Stephen approaches, and he sees the body, so he realizes the doctor is dead. And Colbert appears and tells people to get Stephen. He's the one responsible for this. And I noticed uh, the corpse of the abbot on the ground. Um, it is, uh, in video games, it's called an idle animation, where, <laughs> like, if a character's standing there not doing anything, it'll still be moving slightly, you know, breathing and, you know, so forth. And the corpse has one of those idle animations. <laughs> it was yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, that's the end of the episode as people chase Steven. Next up, the Bell of Doom. <laughs> So we start off in the uh, in the chemist's shop, and that's uh, you know it just occurred to me that it's very common in Doctor Who to have an episode start with what happened at the end of the last episode, and we're not getting so much of that in this series. And you know, I do not know. I I noticed that too that we weren't getting those, and I I think it may be a reconstruction thing, but I don't know. It's a good question. Mm, they may have just trimmed out that yeah. kind of stuff. Could be. But we start off here in the chemist's shop, and we see Anne just sort of wandering aimlessly around the shop until Stephen returns. Anne has been worried terribly about him, and she's a, she's a little shrill here, actually, kind of like uh, Susan used to get once in a while. But Stephen explains that the curfew rang before he could get back last night, so he holed up somewhere else. He tells her the doctor is dead, and... He doesn't sound happy about it, although he doesn't sound terribly broken up about it. Just sort of, uh, the doctor's dead. Mm -hmm. And his body was in the street by the abbot's house. And he needs the key to the TARDIS if he's ever to get out of this time and place. But if the doctor changed in this shop before he went to the abbot's place, then maybe the key is here somewhere with the doctor's original clothes. Mm -hmm. So they're going to look around. At the Louvre, in the meantime, uh, Simon and the Marshal are talking. The Englishman must be caught and killed, is the Marshal's decision. Uh, and it has to be today, because tomorrow is St. Bartholomew's Day. It'll be too hard to catch him then, because he'll be amidst all the revelry. It'll mm -hmm. just, be, just be a big mess. And uh, actually, it's going to be a lot more chaotic than he's even expecting mm -hmm. at the moment. But the marshal says he's been summoned by the queen mother. Simon is to wait here. Back in the shop, Anne had been searching, and she found the doctor's walking stick, uh, which gives Stephen hope of finding the other stuff. And this, uh, this is one of those little reconstruction things I enjoy, which is clearly in this game engine, he didn't have a walking stick to work with, so she, <laughs> has, a, she has an umbrella. An <laughs> yeah. umbrella, yeah. <laughs> he does some thinking, he realizes the doctor couldn't have gone away somewhere with Preslin because he's dead or imprisoned. And then a voice says, he is not. And the voice is recognizable. And Stephen says, 
doctor. <laughs> and of course, that's where we cut to a different scene, which is at the Admiral's house. And there's a big, big cast here this time. Gaston, Nicholas, the Admiral, and a character named Ptolemy, who uh, uh, in the animation, he, he is sort of a long, long haircut. Yeah. And he's, um, he's been around in a bunch of the council meetings and other stuff, but I, I just kind of left him out as a named person because he never really plays a role in anything. But, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. even even here, he doesn't really say anything significant. So Gaston suggests that the Admiral, even though he's wounded, he should leave Paris. But the surgeon has said that the Admiral must not be moved. Gaston leaves. The Admiral calls him a hothead <laughs> after he's left. The Admiral says, I do not fear death. I only hope we, meaning the Huguenots is a collective, I only hope we have nothing to fear from my staying alive. Yep. So he realizes that because the assassination attempt failed, there may be worse things in the offing. And uh, boy, is he right about mm -hmm. that. Back at the shop, the doctor says he was unavoidably delayed. They can't go out now because... Uh, he mentions the curfew for some reason. I don't know. He says well, that wretched. Well, before this, though, and I, you know, the doctor being kind of doctor like, he really criticizes Stephen for not mm. having connected up with him and not having right. stayed at the tavern. And Stephen's like, "But I did stay at the tavern, and you never showed up." And then the doctor's like, "Well, I was unavoidably delayed." It's like, so it was all Stephen's <laughs> fault, and the doctor just, you know, well, I couldn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, when Stephen had to leave the tavern because of the curfew, that uh, that's what the doctor says, <laughs> that wretched curfew is the start of so much trouble. <laughs> the mention of St. Bartholomew's Day, which is tomorrow, uh, seems to ring a bell with the doctor. The doctor asks what year it is. Anne tells him it's 1572. And the doctor says that she must leave at once. He yeah. apparently has remembered something important about history that's... Uh, going to affect her and all of them. Anne protests that at her aunt's house she'll be killed because it's under watch by the Catholics. But the doctor says, just go there and stay indoors tomorrow. So she says goodbye, and Stephen protests. He, he, he thinks the doctor is handling this way too flippantly. But the doctor's firm, and Anne leaves. And Stephen doesn't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. The doctor says uh, the Catholics will have other things on their minds tonight. <laughs> and this is probably as good a place as any for me to mention that, as far as I can tell, we never find out what the doctor was up to for all that time that we were thinking that he was the abbot. Now, my best guess, and I don't know how good it is, but, you know, we know early on that Prislan, he was hoping that the doctor was going to have success talking to the abbot. So... I'm thinking if the doctor ever met the abbot, he would have found it rather remarkable that they sounded identical. So I'm guessing the doctor didn't get into the abbot, but rather came back and probably tried to help Preslan escape by some other means because he wasn't in his shop when Stephen and Anne were staying there. So I'm guessing this, the time that's unaccounted for was the doctor... <laughs> getting Prislan out of town or something like that. But we don't know. We never hear. And that's why I wanted to go back and read up on what the hell did I just watch. <laughs> well, and uh, kind of tangential to that, there's a company called Big Finish, and they do audio Doctor Who stories. And they started up when Doctor Who was moribund. You know, the show had been 
canceled for a long time and it wasn't coming mm. back. And so they started up this this audio story thing as a way to kind of keep Doctor Who going. And that's exactly the kind of story they would tell, right? It's like, oh, here's what happened during this period that, you know, we didn't see in the show or whatever. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, I, I had a book of Star Wars stories that was kind right. of like that, like Tales from Jabba's Palace, right, exactly. I think it was called. Yeah, interesting. So that's my speculation on where the Doctor was. But I, I am somewhat disappointed that it was just never addressed in the actual And also, show. they don't even make like a textual reference or anything to what happened to Preslin. Like, he's just gone from the story after the first episode or, or two there. Yeah, and I didn't think to look up and find out what actually happened to him. Did he, did he die? Good question. I didn't either, but day? I mean, presumably, I mean, we know about germs, so presumably he had some success, <laughs> but I, I don't know. Yeah. Apparently, he wasn't a real person. But he may have been based on Louis Pasteur. Oh, that's odd. Okay, I just totally assumed he was real because they treated him so. Uh, but I mean, Preslin Pasteur, I guess that would make sense. Yeah, it could be. That could be interesting. So they fooled me. I I totally bought into the idea that he must be re- a real character, right? The way that he was treated. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's interesting. Uh, uh, hmm. I guess he was just a convenient plot device. Now. If it was Pasteur, it's out of time because Pasteur was born in 1822. So, well, you know, this, mm, yeah. so at the t- at the age he so had that, to be, it was literally a hundred years later. <laughs> yeah, well, I would I was just glancing at mm. uh, Reddit posts speculating mm. about who right. Frisland was. Interesting. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, now we know he's uh, he's not as the as far as we can establish, uh, he's completely fictional, which. I don't well aside from Doctor Who or the Doctor himself and Stephen and some people or another person we'll meet later. Everybody else but Preslan is historical in this. I think or or he was real and he or, and he got killed at this point and his discoveries were never never publicized. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there were people named Charles Preslan at some point. <laughs> was was he a chemist who discovered germs? We don't know. <laughs> I guess Anne. Anne also was probably a fictional character. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. So the doctor. Okay, we finished my complaints about the doctor <laughs> not explaining what he was up to. <laughs> In the throne room, we see the queen mother approach the marshal. Another one of those long walking sequences. <laughs> she has an order signed by the king, and she doesn't say explicitly what it is, but we find out that what the implications of it are. When the marshal tries to show her a list of the Huguenots that need to go, uh, she says, we don't need lists. Where we're going, we don't need lists. (laughs) And the good people of France will know what to do. So I happen to, in my reading on this, this is not accurate, right? Um, Mm. Because a little bit later, another guy asks, you know, Simon or whatever for, or the mar- yeah, the marshal for lists. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm not giving you a list. You can kill anybody. Well, that's not <laughs> what happened. They actually had lists. And one of those was the admiral who was killed at this point. Mm. And a bunch of the leadership. Because what the, part of what's not discussed here is that one of the reasons they were nervous is that there were like 4,000 Protestant soldiers nearby or something that had been kind of, you know, it's kind of like those those maneuver things that countries do or whatever. And so... They oh, were, so yeah. they were worried they were about to be attacked. So their strategy was to assassinate the leadership to keep the attack from occurring. 
And mm. then after that, it just sort of organically grew to killing everybody. And I think the reason they changed it in the story is simply that there was no way in the story to communicate that process, right, where they started mm. with the list and then people just started killing everybody. So it was e because eventually everybody gets killed, it was easier just to say in the story, oh, we're just going to kill everybody. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> does make the Queen Mother more of a villain, too, which is fun. <laughs> yeah. So the, the marshal argues that at least Henry of Navarre, the uh, the Protestant prince, he must live because if he doesn't, then it could start a whole holy war. You know, the other nations aren't going to care about random Huguenots, but if, if they see a, a member of royalty get killed, you know, they're all related to one another. So. Yeah, that's true. So the queen mother reluctantly agrees, and the marshal is assigned to get him out of the city safely. And also, while the marshals added, he's to close the city gates now. Yeah. So that most Basically people not can't. allowing people to get out. Yeah. Right. Simon arrives, and this is one of those arrivals that uh, is, does it make sense he just pops up in the throne room? Probably not. <laughs> it's convenient to the story. The marshal tells him, you may begin. And he says, there is no list. We are just to unleash the wolves of Paris. <laughs> and Simon likes that very much. He's, he's down to clown. But he doesn't like the next part, which is it's Simon's men who are going to take care of that stuff. Simon's job is to be Henry's escort and protect his safety. So, you know, the one person who he'd probably most enjoy killing, instead <laughs> he's got to protect him while all his buddies yep. get to go out and kill people. Yeah, it so, sucks when you don't get to massacre people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's why they pay him the big bucks, I guess. <laughs> So we see some guards watching a Huguenot's house near the TARDIS. Uh, you know, the TARDIS is parked in the side yard, and <laughs> apparently nobody has carted it off yet, so it uh, must be a little-used lot. And these guards, I, I just thought it was funny that they both have lower-class British accents, you know, like the uh, you, your, your standard-issue uh, British laborer. I'm not sure if it would be considered a Cockney accent, but they're like, you know, the accents you use for a lower-class British person. Mm. An officer comes out and sends them back to quarters. Presumably, they're going to be mustered up to go out and kill some Huguenots. So he just goes patrolling by himself out in front of this house. And it's it's amusing because in the animation, he's just pacing back and forth. <laughs> you know, where the, the two guards were just standing there watching. And then... As the doctor and Stephen are still watching, trying to figure out what they're going to do next, the bells ring the end of curfew, which means it's a free reign to run to the TARDIS, and we hear it make its god-awful ratcheting noise, and it <laughs> vanishes. Uh, and as it vanishes, we hear noises of chaos rising in the streets, uh, yelling and shouting and stomping and crashing and whatnot. So the, uh, the murder is begun. And at this point, after the TARDIS vanishes, uh, we still see that lot that it was parked in. And there's a little metal gate, you know, with bars on the side of the yard where we can see the street outside. And there's probably some montage that went here because this goes on for at least half a minute. Right. And, um, and in the animation, like maybe every 30 seconds, like a couple of people run by. I mean, it's just nothing yeah, going on. We'll, we'll see a couple soldiers run past, or then we'll see a couple peasants fleeing past the gate, you know, and then, then we'll just hear more sound and wait for the next person to run past the gate. 
But the the idea is that the horror has begun. Yep. And then we go to see inside the TARDIS. And uh, Stephen and the doctor are arguing about whether the doctor handled this all the right way. And the doctor explains that we can't change history. Well, I think you should mention, I mean, specifically, Stephen is criticizing the doctor for leaving Anne behind, right? Because she's now going to be killed. And yeah, he, I, I think that comes uh, after the general bit at the beginning. But yeah, after the doctor says, well, around 10,000 people are going to die, I think this is what triggers Stephen to get really angry about specifically abandoning Anne. Mm. Because how do you know that she's not one of the 10,000 who died? And we could have done something differently. We could have let her stay in the shop. We could have taken her in the TARDIS. We could have whatever, you know. So, So Stephen thinks that the doctor handled that badly, callously, very... Very poorly is his yeah. estimation of it. The doctor seems philosophical about it. Of course, this kind of thing is old hat to him, jaunting through time as he does. But, but Stephen's disgusted, and he finally says he's going to get off at the next stop, um, which is kind of ballsy considering he doesn't know what the next <laughs> stop is going to be. I think an interesting thing here is, you know, there's real conflict. I mean, Stephen is really upset at him and, and you know, the doctor is not, as the doctor tends to do in these cases, he's not being empathetic or anything like that. He just, you mm-hmm. know, this is what we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, the doctor, the doctor isn't being unreasonable necessarily. I mean, he's, he's just has a very different perspective on history and inevitability <laughs> than Stephen does. No, as I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he was certainly happy to try and interfere with history, uh, you know, with Preslin. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But as it turns out, Preslin was a made-up character, so maybe <laughs> maybe the doctor knew that all along, and he just went off drinking for. He was on a bender for a couple of days. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the TARDIS is now landed in wherever it's landing next, and Stephen says goodbye before he leaves. The doctor makes a parting remark about history and how we're all too small to realize its final pattern. And Stephen leaves, and the doctor monologues a little bit, and he says, I dare not change the course of history. So, so you know, he's, he's playing up that continual vagueness that we've seen so far in the show, where is it that you can't change history or you dare not? Because right. obviously you can change history even without intending to. Well, I think in Reign of Terror, they said you can't, right? Because they made the whole mm-hmm. point about even if they'd sent a letter to uh, to whoever was in charge in that, that maybe the letter wouldn't have got to him or, you know, like no matter what they did, history would have proceeded mm-hmm. as it was supposed to, right? <laughs> right. And then the doctor laments that they're all gone. Uh, he, he says that uh, they're all gone, and he names Susan and Vicky and Barbara and Chatterton. <laughs> Why did he correct to Chesterton? Uh, yeah, it is a and, funny uh, ongoing joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he called him Charlton and various things <laughs> in the past. Yeah. And they're, they were all, he says, they were all too impatient to get back to their own time. And so he, he seems it isn't clear exactly... Uh, what he thinks was wrong with that urge, I think it's just that they missed the opportunity to have experiences that so few people could right. say that they it's, had. It's all, and this is really interesting here because 
it feels like we're reaching the end of the episode. And mm-hmm. we have seen him give this kind of speech once or twice before. And it is really, you know, morose, right? And, and really impactful speech. I mean, it's really good. And it's a really good acting job. And, you know, he doesn't, in fact, in this whole story, he doesn't mess up his lines. He, do, You know, there's none of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the really, I think, interesting and bizarre things about this episode is you absolutely know what's going to happen, which is after this, it's going to be the end of the episode, you know, and next story, maybe he'll pick up, a, you know, a companion or something. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, there is some, some more interesting stuff coming, but for the moment he's monologuing and, uh, he, he's alone for the first time in the series, alone in the TARDIS, at least, uh, you know, he's been alone in various situations, but, but as far as being a lone traveler in the TARDIS, this is going to be the first time in some time for him. And he can't go back to his own planet. He, he briefly tosses that notion around, but. But uh, he says he can't go back. And, of course, he can't because of the TARDIS is broken and he can't control where it goes. But also, it's not clear if maybe he's in some kind of trouble there. You know, yeah. maybe there's an arrest warrant Well, or yeah, something. they've always sort of hinted that there's a problem, yeah. Mm. So, outside the TARDIS, it seems to be uh, some nice countryside. Could even be English countryside. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it is, in fact, English countryside because a woman runs into the TARDIS Apparently, the door didn't lock behind Stephen when he left. Uh, and she wants to use the police telephone. The doctor <laughs> says, it, it isn't, if you know what I mean. <laughs> which which, which she wouldn't, she, yes. <laughs> uh, and he tells her to run along. And, I know, and she's trying to, like, report, you know, somebody needs an ambulance. And he's just like, oh, whatever, go find some other phone. Like, he's, yeah. not, he's not worried about getting an ambulance yeah, or somebody. Like, find, find a real police, uh, <laughs> police box, lady. But uh, he tells her to run along, and when she doesn't run along, he explains that this is a machine for, and he gives the full acronym, uh, Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. Although I was disappointed because when Susan talked about creating this name, it was Time and Relative Dimension in Space. So he's now now made it plural, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, I imagine you could say it either way. (laughs) But then Stephen returns. He comes back into the TARDIS, uh, which is not the way to make a dramatic exit. But uh, he says two cops are coming. Uh, <laughs> to me, this is funny because, I mean, maybe they're coming because of the action or something. Cause it, but it kind of feels like he went out and did something bad in the last few minutes. And now, <laughs> and now they got to get out because the cops are coming. Cheese <laughs> <laughs> it. It's the fuzz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I'd also say, as I said, I I appreciate that that the end of this episode isn't what you would expect. But there is a bit of what I really, really, one of the many, many things that I really, really disliked about the last Star Wars film, The Rise of Skywalker or whatever. I don't know if you saw that one, but... I did. I don't remember a lot about it, but... uh, (laughs) That's a bit for the best. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that was really annoying about it was... They would have these really important, impactful moments, right? Chewie gets killed in a, you know, in an explosion. C-3PO loses his memory and he'll never be the same again. And so it's this big, impactful moment. And then five minutes later, oh, Chewie wasn't killed. Oh, C-3PO is fine, you know. And <laughs> so they, they, it was cheap because they got the emotional moment and then they undermined mm. it, right? And right. here, 
even though I enjoy this ending, and I'm not really accusing him of this, but it does the same thing, right? Oh, Stephen is left. Right. The doctor is alone. Oh, he's back. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, he he delivered a really stinging rebuke to the doctor. Obviously, <laughs> you know, obviously, really got him good emotionally, and then do. Two minutes later, here's Stephen. <laughs> yep. It's the cops. Let's beat it. <laughs> so the doctor panics and immediately fires up the TARDIS with Stephen and this new chick in it. <laughs> Stephen realizes what's going on, and he says to this lady, he says, you may not get home again. She says, I don't care. <laughs> she, she sounds very emphatic about it, like mm. she just really doesn't care. Turns out she's called Dodo, which is a nickname for her real name, Dorothea, and her full name is Dorothea Chaplet. <laughs> and that happens to be the anglicized version of Chaplet, which is Anne's name, mm-hmm. the lady who was left behind. So Stephen and the doctor are amazed. I, Dodo confirms that she had a French grandfather. She didn't know a lot of the details about. But they speculate that she could very well be a descendant of Anne Chaplet, and the doctor seems to be just tickled, pleased as punch <laughs> to have, have her aboard. And that's where the episode ends with this uh, very odd coincidence that, that reinforces right. to me an idea I've brought up in a few past episodes where the TARDIS seems to be some sort of agent of universal order or you know, something <laughs> like that. You know, it's always dumping the doctor in places where he will end up changing history, whether he intended to or not. <laughs> right. And I'll be interested to see, and I, I won't give you the details on this because I, I want to get your reaction as we go along. Dodo turns out to be one of the most controversial companions. <laughs> and so hmm. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Okay. Well, she... Uh, on the very brief glimpse that we've got of her here, I'd say she shows promise. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Okay, we'll see where we go from there. Um, so, well, what do you think overall about the story? I mean, I, one thing I'll pull out is, you know, I think there's supposed to be this big deal about the Doctor playing the second character. And there's going to be some times in the future where this occurs. And it's the first time the Doctor plays another character in a, in a Doctor Who show, but it happens later on as well. And there's, there's a really great one uh, we'll get to eventually. But... I feel like nothing really happened with it here, right? I mean, the Abbot is barely part of the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you if you've got a guy who somebody else is, I mean, in a way, it's almost admirable that they they take a guy who's apparently the identical clone of the Doctor, same face, same voice, and you know, aside from some story elements that arise from the ambiguity of not knowing which guys the abbot and so forth. They don't really do anything with it. I mean, it's a, it's a waste of a twin, if you ask me. Yeah. And they don't, you know, they don't do, of course, the classic, have them in the same scene at the same time uh, or anything mm-hmm. like that, right? And so basically the doctor disappears and this character is barely in it. And But, you know, like I say, I think a benefit is Stephen gets a, a really solid story. He gets to do a lot. And then at the end, he gets to get mad at the doctor. So, you know, it's really his story. Yeah. I just remembered an old Simpsons scene where Homer's walking down the street and he he sees this guy walk by and he's like, that man looks exactly like me. 
<laughs> and then he he looks off, you know, at an angle, and he says, "Oh, there's a dog with a puffy tail." <laughs> he runs up to chase that, and completely forgets about the identical twins. There, right? So that's kind of what this episode does. So, yeah. But uh, so you wanted me to talk overall about whether it's worth well, watching? Well, yeah, whatever you want to talk about. I mean, you know, I guess uh, it's hard to comment on acting because we don't really get to see the acting; we get to hear it. But yeah, um, yeah, uh, the voice acting, some of the voice acting. Uh, uh, the King's voice acting, he sounded genuinely petulant in some, yeah, some places. You know. I would have liked to have actually seen Andre Morel because it would be great to see, you know, the guy who was Quatermass. And oh, we, sure. I was trying to think, was Quatermass before or after this? And it don't look, I forget the, I'm thinking that was late. Like there were various versions, but I'm thinking they were like early 60s, late 50s. I well, that was a specific, because he only did the one film, because, you know, Quatermass, as Toby talked to us about, was played by different actors in each one. Mm, he was, yeah. So he was in Quatermass in the Pit, the one that we talked with Toby about. And that was, now look at, uh, that was 58. So, yeah, that mm. was actually like six years or so before this. Okay. Very good. So it would have been interesting to, you know, I wish we could have seen that performance so we could sort oh, of contrast sure. it. Yeah, that would have been neat. I guess overall, I'm conflicted about this one because this is the sort of story that normally I should like with, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's not all running from monsters. You got a lot of uh, intrigue and politics and stuff. But the actual, this is more, I don't know, it's more about the relationships between people than it is about the po- the politics like like you don't really find out i mean you could you could watch this and know that the the protestants were nominally the good guys and the catholics were for the story purposes the bad guys without ever coming away with any notion of what a protestant or a catholic is or believes so that was kind of disappointing and it's just so damn convoluted like i said (laughs) i had i had to look up synopses afterwards at to make sense of some of the stuff that I had seen. Yeah, I, I would say, honestly, I think, and, you know, again, I, I would be interested to see if the audio book kind of does this, but I think it's better to listen to a podcast like this where we explain it all because you're not, <laughs> especially when it's a reconstruction that's hard to, and, and because it's all complicated and everything, and the audio is often not great, I mean, you really have to struggle or read a script or whatever to figure it out. So having people like us do it for you is probably the better way to go. But I was thinking, you know, Calling back to Quatermass, I mean, this would be ridiculous because we've already said this is a kid show and this story is ridiculously adult as it was. But to me, it would have been great to do what they did in Quatermass that we talked about, which is when they get to the point where everyone's going crazy at the end, right? It's really dramatic. And and that's basically the same as here, right? Everybody goes mm-hmm. crazy and is running around and lots of people are dying. And in Quatermass, it's quite intense and dramatic and 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 really something to experience. And here... It's not, right? It's it's just kind uh, of in the background. Soldiers running past the gate. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's the reconstruction, but I'm sure it wasn't yeah. that much different in in the real one. Uh, yeah, certainly not. They might have done a bunch of still images or something like that. You know, who knows what they put in there originally. Right. So I I would have liked it if they'd leaned into that of of just how bad this got, right? As long as they were they were doing this. And yeah, and you know, so yeah, so what? So where where are you then coming down on worth watching? Um, I'd say 
Most people, it would not be worth watching for. I mean, I would just say as a blanket statement, probably not worth watching. I'd say, I'd say if you're if you're interested in it, unless you're really really interested in it, maybe try episode four. You know, <laughs> the last episode it, that could be worth checking out. And uh, the the previous three episodes are just. There's a lot of talking. You know, I, I mean, it probably came through in my narration i'd be like oh and here we are at the admiral's house and these two are talking you know mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of talk which usually I, I i enjoy but there's not a lot of humor or quotable lines or you know there's it's 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 pretty dry stuff for the most part so right. you really have to like that sort of thing yeah and i think that's one area where they're hurt by not having the doctor even though i liked having it be a steven story um if the doctor had been involved in more of those conversations he could have said humorous things or you know that put his spin on that sort of thing but he but the, he wasn't a part of it so yeah um, yeah and i think where i would put it and i i forget if i talked about this before the episode or, or it, during our recording, the first couple episodes and I just felt like, wow, this is not, you know, really not interesting for me. Mm-hmm. But I would say for a Doctor Who fanatic, you want to watch this episode for the ending like you were talking about. You want to watch it mm-hmm. for some of the character moments that occur there because you get to see some really interesting stuff between Stephen and the doctor and the doctor being, you know, morose about being alone and, and all the rest of that. And I, I think you really don't want to miss that. Like yeah. you said, you could kind of just skip to episode four and experience that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So not, not in our, uh, now it's interesting. I did see uh, some list of, you know, top stories, put this in like one of the top 15 doctor who stories. And uh, obviously we're not, mm. we're not there. Um, yeah, I, I might not even put it in the top fifteen of the ones we've already watched. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's I, I mean I, you know, as, as a as a history as a history teaching aid, it might be it might be great to put that on, you know, in a yeah when you're a substitute teacher in a mm-hmm. history class or something. But uh, you know, it is it's it's pretty dry <laughs> overall. Until the last episode when all the slaughter starts coming up. <laughs> okay, so we don't suggest you spend too much time on this one uh, outside of listening to this uh, podcast. But uh, <laughs> next week, we, we hope for better. <laughs> yeah, not going to. So we will talk to you then. All right. <laughs>